And that was Bruce Coburn with the track Lightstorm from the album Night Vision. Greetings and welcome to You Can't Be Neutral. This is the inevitable evolution of the Bernie 2016, Bernie 2020, and Howie 2020 podcasts. It's more of the same mixed in with something new, and it's an excursion through the social and political landscape of media and my mind. You can follow You Can't Be Neutral on Twitter at YCBNeutral. You can find out more about this podcast at YouCan'tBeNeutral.com and all of my podcasts at MovingTrainMedia.com. So what better day to start out this new endeavor following on the heels of Howie 2020 than Election Day? It is November 3rd, 2020, as I record this first episode of You Can't Be Neutral, which is Election Day in the United States. We've got our presidential election. We've got various other elections on the ballot, ballot questions uh, for, for individuals to approve or reject on those ballots as well. And we're going to spend some time this episode talking about what might be the most important election of 2020. And it's not the one happening today, but we'll get there in a bit. First up, we have a piece published at organizingchange.org and written by Drew Saris. Here's how Desmond Tutu Ellie Weisel, Paulo Freire, and MLK approach neutrality. If you are neutral in situations of injustice, you have chosen the side of the oppressor. Desmond Tutu I grew up trying to be neutral, so seeing this quote was one of a few that completely altered my life's direction. I enjoyed being a positive person, but when being a positive person leads me to avoid taking sides or hiding my true values, then I'm being an individual who supports our current power structures. Desmond Tutu's words show us that as our nonprofits, community organizations, and friends increasingly state their desire to be, quote, nonpartisan, we must remind them by aiming for neutrality and nonpartisanship they buttress our oppressive systems. Desmond Tutu, one of the world's leading moral voices and activist for ending institutionalized oppression, saw firsthand in South Africa how being neutral was a, par- was a partial reason for the continued strength of the apartheid system. Freedom fighters struggled for decades before the international community stepped out of their neutral policies and denounced South Africa's apartheid state. Even then, many nations advocated for gradual reforms from government instead of supporting the movement demanding the realization of the Freedom Charter, principles for a new just society, and the overthrow of colonialist institutions. South Africa and the United States reduced their levels of repression only when committed groups 
and individuals took a strong stand for the values of justice for all people. Quote, We must take sides. Neutrality helps the oppressor, never the victim. Silence encourages the tormentor, never the tormented. Ellie Weisel Today we are constantly faced with injustice. For example, school-to-prison pipeline and exploiting indigenous land to fuel dominant fossil fuel use. Though many times we stay silent. Some may be quite vocal about a few issues, but remain neutral in areas, quote, outside their area. In particular, I've seen so many organizations refuse to do what they think is right, because taking action, quote, might upset the funders. Most funders, whether from foundations or government, encourage organizations to work within existing power structures, resist groups that are politically active, and mobilize against governmental, financial, or cultural systems. This suppression of activism occurs because funders are already deeply entrenched in current ways of operating. If our groups are operating under the barrier that they must be neutral and avoid confronting our existing institutions of power, then don't you think they're going to have to keep solving the same symptoms of poverty, educational inequality, and health disparity over and over again? Quote, Washing one's hands of the conflict between the powerful and the powerless means to side with the powerful, not to be neutral. Paolo Friere Often in more liberal community development fields, there is a strong desire to remain impartial and, quote, objective. However, in doing so, they, quote, side with the powerful. While having a desire for collaboration, consensus, and community is not bad necessarily, we have to keep in mind that these ideals can expand the reach of injustice. For example, dominant male culture promotes the expectation that men should ignore sexism and just accept that, quote, boys will be boys. This passive bystander approach to sexism is one of the main contributors to our extremely high rate of sexual violence. By saying one is not going to take sides and just remain on the sidelines, these individuals provide their tacit acceptance. Quote, The hottest place in hell is reserved for those who remain neutral in times of great moral conflict. An individual who accepts evil without protesting against it is really cooperating with it. Martin Luther King Jr. Martin Luther King Jr.'s quote provides another voice that starkly outlines the damage caused by neutrality, but it also leads to one of the primary ways we can build a culture of active response to injustice. Speak out against any and all injustice, both large and small. Whether you witness an act of interpersonal oppression or you see a trend of institutionalized oppression. Try to find ways to illuminate darkness. Share the voices of those committed to exposing injustice. If you're not ready to be as vocal as you wish, 
highlighting the thoughts and actions of those dedicated to denouncing injustice is a great way to build your own courage. Analyze areas of your organization and life to see where you have remained neutral in order to decide how you will become active against oppression. I know I rarely, if at all, thought about where I was neutral, since it was so ingrained in my every behavior. Thus, you may need to take a close look at where you are quiet and where you have started to express yourself. Agitate for increasing how your organization, and even yourself, encourages an environment of active responses to injustice. Identify how you can provide training, change, policies, and lead by example. Desmond Tutu, Ellie Weisel, Paulo Freire, and Martin Luther King Jr. provide a clear moral and strategic outlook at how we can approach neutrality. Their lives show that taking a stand is challenging, but is essential to dismantling injustice. Next up, we have a piece on democracy and elections. And elections can be a very important part of an organization or society, but they neither end up being consistently fair and equitable nor do they guarantee democracy. And that is the name of this piece. Democracy is not guaranteed by elections alone. This is written by Sir Ronald Sanders. It's published at minafn.com. That's M-E-N-A-F-N.com. A bizarre moment at the 50th session of the General Assembly of the Organization of American States, OAS, on October 20 and 21, was a claim by the outgoing Foreign Minister, Karen Longerich, that her government had brought democracy to Bolivia. It was the people of Bolivia who had brought democracy to Bolivia, and everybody knew it. Longaric was one of those who had helped to deny it. Most Bolivians resentful of Longaric and her party that had assumed government one year ago with the help of the military turfed them out through the power of the ballot. On November 11, 2019, the commander of the armed forces, Williams Colloman, announced that, quote, we asked the president of the state, Evo Morales, to renounce his presidential mandate it was hardly a request that Morales could refuse with the armed forces arrayed against him. The military instruction to Morales to renounce his presidency and leave Bolivia came after presidential elections were declared fraudulent by an audit team from the OAS. The team's findings were hotly disputed, including by the New York Times, which on June 7, 2020, yeah, a little bit late there, New York Times, said that, quote, a study by independent researchers using data obtained by the New York Times from the Bolivian electoral authorities has found that the Organization of American States statistical analysis was itself flawed. Recalling this event at the OAS 50th General Assembly, Maximiliano Reyes Zuniga, the Mexican representative, placed responsibility for the, quote, 
flawed analysis directly in the hands of Louis Amalgro, the OAS Secretary General. He stated, quote, Mexico suggests to Luis Almagro that he submit himself to a process of self-criticism of his actions against the OAS Charter and for hurting Bolivia's democracy to determine if he still has the necessary moral authority to lead this organization. In any event, in November 2019, the Bolivian military installed Janine Añez, a member of the Civic Community Party, as president. She pledged to hold fresh elections within three months in February 2020. That pledge was also given to the member states of the OAS at a subsequent meeting of the Permanent Council. But the February date became May and then September. And finally, October, amid growing violence in the country, including atrocities against the indigenous people who are the main supporters of Morales's party, Movement Towards Socialism, or MAS. No effort was made in the OAS to hold Añez's government to account because, hypocritically, it had become an ally of powerful governments in their campaign to target selected countries, particularly Venezuela, and Nicaragua. Only increasing agitation by the Bolivian people eventually led to elections on October 18, 2020. 88.42% of Bolivia's 7 million voters turned out at the election, giving Morales's successor as leader of MAS, Luis Arce, 55.18% of the vote in the first round. There was no room for the OAS or any elections observation mission to claim fraud. For many, this overwhelming number served to reinforce the view that Morales had also won the 2019 elections and had been wrongfully denied it. Despite Moss's convincing win, all is not well in Bolivia. Louis Arce, the president-elect, will not be sworn in until November 8th, in the meantime, much mischief can be made, and there are those who are agitating it. On October 27, crowds were organized outside military barracks in four areas of Bolivia, calling for the armed forces to intervene to overturn the result of the October 18 general election. The ethnic group who had ruled the country for decades prior to Morales and who grabbed power for a year under Añez is angry at having to relinquish control. Among the organized crowds were far-right militia groups threatening violence if the result is not overturned. However, the military is keenly aware that the large number of MAS supporters would not tolerate another installation of a government they did not elect. These supporters are already demanding action against the military for killing protesters opposed to the removal of Morales last year. They want Ars to punish those responsible, something he is unlikely to do given the impracticality of it. Therefore, an uneasy truce is more likely with the troops staying in their barracks and the commanders maintaining their constitutional role, at least for now. Bolivian society is riven by deep ethnic divisions. Racist discourse, religious bigotry, 
and regional rivalry have long been a feature of the country's politics. The hostility has re-emerged in a nation divided between a wealthier, more European-descended lowland east and a more indigenous, poorer highland west. This situation will call for careful handling by the new Ars government. While those opposed to his government on grounds of ethnic superiority are a minority, they comprise the far right, which is given to violence, and have links to other far right ideological groups in the hemisphere. In seeking reparations for slavery, CARICOM countries have made it clear they also want reparation for genocide against indigenous people. That is why shortly after Añez's government took office, ambassadors representing the 14 independent CARICOM nations at the OAS produced a resolution taking a strong position against discrimination and violence toward the indigenous people in Bolivia. It was adopted by a majority vote of only one vote to the vexation of the governments at the OAS allied to the Añez government. Fortunately, on October 21, with no shred of doubt surrounding the will of the majority of the Bolivian people, in the 2020 elections, the U.S. government declared that it, quote, looks forward to working with the new democratically elected government on matters of mutual interest. Nonetheless, unease remains among some hemispheric nations ruled by a particularly ethnic and rightist elite. Consequently, the situation in Bolivia will now have to be watched carefully for attempts to undermine Ars's government by forces inside and outside the country. We'll have a little bit more on Bolivia coming up later. But first, it's names and addresses. One of the first times I talked to Judy Berry on the phone, and I had never met her, I said, Judy, you know, the earth is not dying. It's being killed. The people who are killing it have names and addresses. What I mean by that is through power structure research, through hunting very carefully, we can find out the names and addresses of the people who really have their foot on our necks, the people who are really causing the damage. And then nonviolently, My vision, my dream is that thousands, thousands, millions of people go to those homes, go to the places where they shop, go to the places where they take their vacation, sit in the doorways, lie in front of the cars, and when they're hauled away to jail, other people take their place. Surround them, put them in jail. Oh yes, I know it's an air-conditioned jail and the food's pretty good, but they're in lager, they're surrounded, like like in uh, Montreal, um, like at Genoa. They're behind the barbed wire, they're behind the concrete. We've got them in prison, we've got to understand that they're afraid of us, all right? Let's make sure that they can't enjoy their ill-gotten gain. And that was Utah Phillips introducing this segment, Names and Addresses. Here is where we will occasionally take a dive in to the corporate malfeasance and name and shame those companies and individuals that are fucking with us. This piece is by Joseph Winters and is published at grist.org. Ford and GM knew about climate change and covered it up for decades. Exxon knew. Shell knew. Coal knew. Is it any surprise 
that top auto manufacturers knew too. A new investigation from E&E News revealed that Ford and General Motors knew as early as the 1960s that car emissions caused climate change. Scientists at both companies were, quote, deeply and actively engaged in research linking their products to global warming, according to Carol Muffett, president and CEO of the Center for International Environmental Law, which obtained hundreds of company documents for the report. And yet, despite this information, GM and Ford spent decades eschewing electric vehicles and doubling down on gas-guzzling SUVs. They financed climate denial groups who worked to block international climate agreements and opposed stricter U.S. emissions standards. E&E News's five-month-long investigation into the automaker's knowing climate culpability is the latest in a long list of corporate environmental cover-ups. In 2015, reporting from Inside Climate News at the LA Times implicated virtually all of the world's major oil and gas companies in the decades-long suppression of climate science, sparking the hashtag ExxonNew movement online. A later report from the Energy and Policy Institute suggested the same was true of many electric utilities. At GM... The story began with Ruth Reck, a Minnesota State University physicist who joined the company in 1965. Collaborating with scientists from Princeton University, her early research attempted to quantify the amount of light and heat that the Earth absorbs. In one 1975 paper on aerosols, the tiny particles that cars emit when they burn fossil fuels, she wrote, that they could cause atmospheric warming near the Earth's poles. Reck told e News that she warned her colleagues about how these warmer temperatures could cause ice sheets to collapse and ocean levels to rise. Quote, It disturbs the entire globe, and it disturbs the food we can grow and everything else, she recalled saying. Reck and her collaborators at GM presented this research and other findings to at least three high-level executives, including a former chair and CEO and the vice president of government relations. Scientists at Ford offered similar warnings about climate change. One physicist, Gilbert Plass, had already published scientific articles on, quote, the carbon dioxide theory of climate change before he arrived at the company in 1956. Another researcher, Daryl Birch, studied CO2 absorption in the atmosphere. While at Ford, Plass pointed specifically to the burning of fossil fuels as a key driver of climate change. In 1961, he even predicted that human activity would cause a 1.1 degree Celsius rise in global temperatures each century. As of 2019, Earth has warmed about 1.15 degrees Celsius from its pre-industrial average. Ford and GM chose not to heed their in-house scientists' warnings about climate change. Until the turn of the century, the auto companies were part of climate denial groups like Global Climate Coalition, which lobbied against climate action at the Rio Earth Summit and the Kyoto Protocol. Between 1985 and 2008, Ford and GM gave more than $3 million to conservative anti-climate groups like the American Enterprise Institute. 
Moreover, the company seemed to have put little effort into improving their vehicle's fuel efficiency or developing electric cars. Ford cars improved by 0.4 miles per gallon between 1985 and 2010, inching from an average of 20 mpg to just 20.4. GM autos virtually flatlined over the same period. But amid growing public awareness about the climate crisis and rising demand for more environmentally friendly vehicles, Ford and GM recently seem to have retreated from climate denial. Both companies now acknowledge the need for climate action and have set goals to become more sustainable. Ford says it will release an electric F-150 pickup truck in 2022 and wants to become carbon neutral by 2050. GM says it plans to release at least 20 new EVs by 2023, including an electric version of its 6,000-pound Hummer. Quote, There is nothing we can say about events that happened one or two generations ago. A GM spokesman told E&E News, They are irrelevant to the company's positions and strategy today. But not irrelevant to the amount of uh, damage you all have done pursuing those goals of obscuring the climate crisis. So a big fuck you to Ford and GM for those activities. And so we head back to Bolivia for this next story. This one published at jacobinmag.com. Written by Olivia Arrigo Stiles. Orlando Gutierrez, the Bolivian militant trade union leader, has been murdered by a fascist gang in Bolivia. He gave his life to the struggle for democracy, workers' rights, and socialism. Orlando will not be forgotten. And fascism will not win. The charismatic mining union leader Orlando Gutierrez has died in Bolivia days after he was beaten viciously by a fascist gang, protesting the results of the Bolivian elections, in which the left-wing Movimiento al Socialismo, MAS, triumphed. Gutierrez's death at just 36 years comes amid a surge in violence directed against the trade union and campesino movements in the wake of the coup last November. In August, the headquarters of the COB, or Bolivian Workers' Center, the Trade Union Federation in La Paz, was bombed while recent months saw arrest warrants issued against syndicalists by the coup regime. Gutierrez was executive secretary of the FSTMB, or the Union Federation for Bolivian Mining Workers, the powerful miners' union in Bolivia, founded in 1944, which dominates the COB. He was tipped to be the new mining minister in the Ars government. Last week, he was attacked by an anti-MAS gang, which left him with serious injuries. He had been in intensive care at the hospital in La Paz for several days before he died. The police and the public ministry have now officially opened an investigation into his death. The FSTMB has declared 90 days of national mourning.
Gutierrez's death follows presidential elections earlier this month, which signaled a dramatic return to democracy for the plurinational state and a landslide victory for MAS's candidate, Luis Arce. Gutierrez was an active supporter of MAS, accompanying the candidates to rallies across the country. Throughout the year, he led fierce criticisms of the de facto government for mishandling the COVID-19 pandemic, its politically motivated arrests, and for repeatedly, repeatedly delaying elections. Tributes have been flooding in from the international labor movement. Ian Lavery, a former miner, ex-president of the National Union of Mine Workers, and former chair of the UK Labor Party, said, quote, The thoughts and solidarity of the labor movement across the world should be with the family of Orlando Gutierrez today, a man murdered simply for standing up for dignity and justice for working people. As someone who started my working life down the pit and lives through the great strike of 1984-85, I found his story particularly heartbreaking to read so soon after the restoration of democracy in Bolivia this month. Orlando will not be forgotten, and fascism will not win. It must be confronted wherever it rears its head. Last October, amid rising anti-MAS protests, miners' unions descended on La Paz, dropping teeth-shatteringly loud dynamite to protest in favor of ousted President Evo Morales and the MAS. More recently, the COB and the FSTMB led the movement for democracy against the oppressive tendencies of the coup regime under Janine Añez. In August, the COB and its assorted unions called an indefinite general strike, with protests, marches, and road blockades bringing the country to a standstill to demand fresh elections and the resignation of Añez. The murder of Gutierrez indicates a rising threat from fascist parastate groups. In Cochabamba, the violent armed group Resistencia Juvenil Cochala, RJC, spearheaded demonstrations against the recent election result, while in Santa Cruz, the civic group Pro Santa Cruz Civic Committee issued a statement urging the electoral authority to suspend the vote count due to, quote, fraud. The mobilization last year of Petitas, mainly middle-class urban and right-wing groups, marked the beginnings of a newly emboldened far-right movement in Bolivia. In October 2019, these groups rallied ostensibly around the slogan of, quote, democracy, painting Morales and the MAS government as illegitimate and oppressive. In this, they hoped to capitalize on discontent around Morales' decision to run for a controversial fourth presidential term. In their chance, they would denigrate Evo as a dictator and compare Bolivia to, quote, communist Venezuela. When the coup government of Janine Añez eventually seized power, darker fascistic currents proliferated and were at times actively supported by the regime. In the aftermath of the coup, several ex-ministers and officials became subject to arrest warrants and claimed asylum in the Mexican embassy in La Paz. In response, gangs of right-wing paseños from the wealthy Zona Sur area gathered to harass embassy staff and vehicles with the support of the police. State massacres of anti-coup protesters in Sencada 
El Alto and Sacaba, Cochamba, co- coincided with a resurgence in acts of racial hatred, such as the burning of the Wafala, which represents Andean indigenous peoples. The demonization and systemic persecution of the Mas subsequently took on a highly racialized quality, with right-wing politicians invoking images of indigenous peoples as, quote, savage and unfit for political power. Gutierrez rose to prominence in a workers' movement renowned for its militancy and accustomed to harsh working conditions. The Bolivian intellectual and Communist Party founder, Sergio Almaraz, once said that in Bolivia, quote, the 20th century arrived on the shoulders of tin mining. The Bolivian labor movement, dominated by the miners, has historically been among the most powerful and tightly organized in the world. Owing in part to the efforts of the debonair mining leader Juan Lachin, the Bolivian Revolution of 1952 saw the nationalization of the Patino, Aramayo, and Hochschild mining companies, which accounted for a quarter of world tin production at that time. This brought the mining sector under control of the Corporación Mineral de Bolivia, Comebol, which was steered by the FSTMB, although the catastrophic tin crash in 1985 irrevocably weakened the mining movement. In later years, the COB, the FSTMB, would play a decisive role in the struggles for democracy in dictatorships of the 1970s and 80s, spearheading general strikes and blockades. Gutierrez was born in the mining town of Colquiri, La Paz, and worked his way up the mining union to become executive secretary in 2015. Angus McNelly, a research fellow at Queen Mary University of London, who interviewed Gutierrez and spent extensive time with mining unions for his research, recalls a man quick to laughter, deeply respected by his fellow miners, and resolutely committed to the struggle for workers' emancipation. In a similar vein, President-elect Louis Arce tweeted that he was, quote, a great mining leader who always defended the interests of the Bolivian people. The loss of Gutierrez at the hands of fascist violence is a gut-wrenching blow to the workers' movement in Bolivia, to democracy, and to the thousands who knew and loved a courageous union leader. His legacy must now be the just world he did so much to bring about, and he sadly never got to see. And he was one of many fighting in the world, all over the world, for a better world, for workers, for all kinds of uh, citizens of every nation. And I have another podcast called People Are Revolting that celebrates the struggle, that celebrates the people getting out there in the street and in their classrooms and in their workplaces and in their communities and pushing the powers that be, the ones controlling situations and lives out there to make things better. And here is a recent episode of People Are Revolting. Wow, wow, wow. 
you want a sign that humanity's still got it going on. The people are revolting. Welcome to People Are Revolting, a daily dose of disobedience. The story is written by Zachary Eanes and Carly Brosseau and is published at newsobserver.com. Alamance County Sheriff's deputies and Graham police pepper sprayed people, including a five-year-old girl and other children, who are participating in the I Am Change March to the Polls on Saturday afternoon. A racially diverse group of about 200 people walked with a police escort from Wayman's Chapel AME Church to Court Square, where they held a rally encouraging people to vote. The event was organized by Reverend Greg Drumright, a Burlington native who leads the Citadel Church in Greensboro. At least three politicians participated in some parts of the event. The current mayor of Burlington, Ian Baltudis, Democratic candidate for county commissioner, Driama Caldwell, and Democratic school board candidate, Seneca Rogers. At one point, the marchers held a moment of silence in the street in honor of George Floyd, the black man killed while in police custody in Minneapolis earlier this summer. After the moment of silence concluded, law enforcement told people to clear the road. Then, deputies and police officers used pepper spray on the crowd and began arresting people. Several children in the crowd were affected by the pepper spray. Melanie Mitchell said her 5-year-old and 11-year-old daughters were pepper sprayed just after the moment of silence. She said Graham police approached the crowd and assembled in the street and told them to move onto the sidewalk, and soon began spraying pepper spray towards the ground. Mitchell's five-year-old took off running, she said. Both kids threw up. My 11-year-old was terrified, Mitchell said. She doesn't want to come down to Graham anymore. The crowd then moved to the courthouse, where speeches were being given. But before the speeches concluded, Alamance County Sheriff's deputies began dismantling the sound system and telling the crowd to disperse. George Floyd's niece was slated to speak at the event, but the speeches were disrupted before she got a chance at the microphone. Deputies and officers again used pepper spray to force people off the courthouse property. Veronica Holman said her three-year-old great-nephew also threw up after being pepper sprayed. They had been sitting on a brick wall across the street from the courthouse, she said. They didn't warn us or anything, she said. We were just sitting on the wall. Another video posted on social media showed a woman in a motorized wheelchair reacting to pepper spray that was released about 10 feet from her. At least 12 people were arrested. About 20 police officers and sheriff's deputies stood guard outside the county jail following the arrests. About 100 marchers gathered on a grass strip outside with officers stationed on both sides of the crowd. Drumright was among those arrested, along with many activists associated with the group People for Change, which has organized frequent demonstrations in Court Square this summer. 
Also arrested were Caldwell's campaign manager and Alamance news reporter, Thomas Murawski. Tom Boney Jr., the publisher of the newspaper, said Murawski was taking photos on the street when he was arrested. When I spoke to him on the street while he was in police custody, they said they ordered them to move out of the roadway, Boney said in an interview with the NNO. He was doing so while still taking photos, but apparently not fast enough for the police. Murawski was charged with resisting, delaying, or obstructing a public officer, Boney said, adding that the reporter was being accused of pulling away from an officer. The reporter, however, was adamant he was not resisting the officer, Boney said. A video of the incident shows no sign that the reporter was resisting. In a statement released Saturday evening, Graham police said Drumright and the marchers hadn't followed proper procedures for holding the event. The department said it warned the group that it would not be allowed to close the road, said Lieutenant Daniel Sisk, a spokesman for Graham police. The department defended its use of pepper spray by saying, quote, The assembly reached a level of conduct that led to the rally being deemed unsafe and unlawful by unified command. The protest did not appear to disrupt the last day of early voting in the city, according to the State Board of Elections. We're still gathering information, but it appears that voting has continued and hasn't been interrupted, Patrick Gannon, spokesman for the State Board of Elections, told the News and Observer. But many who were marching may not have reached the polls. Faith Cook was one of the few marchers to make it to the polling place on Elm Street. I've never experienced anything like that, Cook told the News and Observer. Nobody should have to. I think it was their intention from the moment this march was announced that we don't get to the polls in numbers. Quenslin Ellison, president of Alamance Alliance for Justice, who helped organize the march, questioned why the marchers were met with pepper spray. Why were we tear-gassed on the day we were going to the polls? Voter intimidation, Ellison said. We've been out here doing this for several weeks, and we were peaceful. How do we get treated with such a great threat? The IM Change March was billed in part as a get-out-the-vote initiative as well as a demonstration against police violence. This is a nonpartisan march, Drumwright said earlier this week, according to the Burlington Times News. This march is encouraging people to go to the polls and vote for change. Scott Huffman, who is challenging Republican Representative Ted Budd in North Carolina's 13th District in the U.S. House of Representatives, condemned the actions of law enforcement on Saturday. In the video, he said he was affected by the pepper spray that was deployed. They should not be doing this to fellow Americans. Black lives matter, he said in a video posted on Twitter. All lives won't matter until we stop this, and I mean it. I urge my Republican opponent, Ted Budd, to finally stand up to this white supremacist, stand up to these neo-Nazis, and stand for America, not those people. This is wrong. This is wrong. I'm just watching what's happening right now, and it's wrong. North Carolina Attorney General Josh Stein said on Twitter that he went to the courthouse in Graham after hearing about the day's events. All eligible voters in North Carolina have a constitutional right 
to cast their votes safely and securely without threats or intimidation, Stein wrote on Twitter. Through a spokeswoman, Stein declined to speak with the News and Observer Saturday night. Governor Roy Cooper also used Twitter to comment on the events in Graham. Like Stein, he declined an interview through a spokesman. This incident is unacceptable, Cooper wrote on Twitter. Peaceful demonstrators should be able to have their voices heard, and voter intimidation in any form cannot be tolerated. After his release from jail Saturday evening, Drumwright said the arrest would not discourage activists. Today has actually only emboldened us, he said in a speech streamed on Facebook. Drumwright said he and other organizers were released on the condition that they not return to Graham for 72 hours. Drumwright and his supporters plan to hold a news conference in Burlington on Sunday afternoon. In 2012, the U.S. Department of Justice laid out nine ways in which Alamance County Sheriff Terry Johnson and his deputies violated people's constitutional rights in the county through, quote, a pattern or practice of discriminatory policing. The DOJ, under the Obama administration, filed a lawsuit over the accusations, but a Republican-appointed federal judge threw out the suit. The DOJ appealed, then agreed to drop its legal threats in exchange for Johnson agreeing to actions, including bias-free policing training, for his deputies. Johnson since been re-elected sheriff twice in 2014 and 2018. Both times, no one ran against him. And if you want to check out back episodes of People Are Revolting, just go to peoplearerevolting.com. You can also follow on Twitter at People Revolting. Keep revolting. And thanks for listening. A sign that humanity's still got it going on. The people are revolting. I think you just nailed it. And from aljazeera.com, here is a story on. The ongoing struggles and challenges as Bolivia moves back from the coup government back to a democratically elected government. Bolivia's outgoing parliament approved a motion recommending that ex-interim president Janine Añez and her ministers face justice for responsibility over last year's unrest, which left around 30 people dead. The Chamber of Deputies and the Senate, meeting in joint session, approved on Thursday a parliamentary report on the massacres of Senkata, Sakaba, and Yapakani, which recommends a judgment of responsibility against Janine Añez for genocide and other offenses, according to the Senate's Twitter account. Parliament also approved the criminal indictment of 11 ministers. 
a parliamentary commission controlled by the Movement for Socialism, MAS Party, of former President Evo Morales, spent months investigating incidents that took place in several regions of the country between October and November 2019, which left about 30 dead. It presented its report on Tuesday, a little over a week after new socialist President Luis Arce, the MAS candidate, took power. An investigation by the Inter-American Human Rights Commission found that 35 people were killed in these incidents. The unrest came after Morales won a fourth term in an election that sparked weeks of protests and charges of fraud. Morales was forced to resign on November 10 before going into exile in Mexico and then Argentina. Conservative former Senator Añez assumed power as interim president after Morales fled. Senate President Eva Copa, a member of MAS, specified that the report would be submitted to the Bolivian prosecution for opening possible proceedings. She is also counting on the fact that the report will likely be approved by the new parliament, where the MAS retains its majority and which is due to take office next week. And that'll bring us to our final story. And Howard Zinn wrote his most well-known book, A People's History of the United States. And it's amazing. It's one of the seminal pieces of, uh, of literature, of written work in my lifetime that helped shape my politics. Highly recommended for everyone who wants to know more about the real history of the United States. So a people's history is all well and good. And and as the saying goes, if you don't understand your history, you'll be doomed to repeat it. Knowing history is really important. As important as knowing history and learning from it is having a vision for the future so what what we need alongside that people's history is a people's future of the united states and uh here's one contribution to that better future that many of us are looking to build this is published at newlocal.org.uk and is written by Dr. Simon K. K-A-Y-E. Think big, act small. Eleanor Ostrom's radical vision for community power. Ostrom is the intellectual hero of the community power movement. Her decades-long research confirms what many of us already believe, that people are less selfish and more capable than we're conditioned to think. This has radical implications for how we run our public services and move forward as a society. In this major new piece of work, Dr. Simon Kay unpacks her ideas and presents their real urgent lessons for the UK today. You can read the executive summary below, or you can download the full report at the link here Once again, this piece is at newlocal.org.uk. 
Introduction. Eleanor Ostrom humanized the study of economics and politics. She discovered what is possible and the problems that can be solved when we trust each other. Her work inspires optimism, but she was also a realist, basing her findings on decades of tireless work in the real world. This quietly revolutionary research led her to become the first woman to win a Nobel Prize in economics. She demonstrated that people's motivation and ability to cooperate, participate, and sustainably control their own resources are far greater than is usually assumed. Ostrom's work offers grounds for ambitiously reimagining the relationship between people and institutions. It should inform and inspire policy debate about community power, devolution, public service reform, and organizational transformation. This report draws out Ostrom's insights for the UK in the context of a growing crisis in the relationship between people and institutions. It adapts and contextualizes her work into a new set of practical lessons for self-governance, where communities take control over the things that matter to them, and connects these with contemporary examples of community-powered projects in the UK. It offers a new analysis of Ostrom's key insights that a different model beyond markets and states is possible in communities with high levels of autonomy and internal trust. Recognition of these insights could lead to more diverse and creative solutions to our problems. The experience of mutual aid in response to COVID-19 pandemic shows the power latent in our communities. Growing and sustaining it will involve learning Ostrom's lessons for community power with strong civil society and empowered facilitative local government in place to safeguard community rights and act as a guarantor for three key conditions, locality, autonomy, and diversity. This report distills three important overlapping arguments from across Ostrom's scholarship to form a case for decentralization and enhance community power. The Commons. Communities can manage their own resources. Beyond markets and states, there is a third model where communities establish their own systems without the need for regulation or privatization. These communities can be found all over the world and are demonstrably capable of managing common resources and assets in a more sustainable and productive way than comparable state or market systems. Self-governance. Democracy is more meaningful at a local level. Legitimacy and social trust can only flourish when people have a reasonable expectation of influence over the things that affect their lives. Mobilized communities will tend to benefit from having a decision-making power and control over resources to develop local services and facilities. Polycentricity In complex social and environmental systems, there are no one-size-fits-all solutions. What is needed is a dynamic system that permits experimentation and which can tolerate the existence of diverse and layered institutions of different kinds. The alternative, where top-down monolithic systems dominate, diminishes resilience. 
Rather, it centralizes risks and quashes creative, adaptive solutions to problems. The three core conditions of community power. Ostrom's best known and most celebrated work is her scholarship on self-governance of the commons, an asset or resource shared by a community, rather than privately or state-owned. Importantly, she set out a series of design principles that the most successful and long-lived self-governing communities tended to share. This report re-articulates those principles, distilling them into three core conditions which correspond with the three key insights above. Locality. Systems should be designed for specific places. Systems, including the way that resources are managed, rules are designed, and decisions are made, should be originated within and appropriate for the particular places where they operate. Ostrom's evidence shows this makes it more likely that people will collaborate and cooperate with each other and that overall outcomes can be improved this way. Autonomy. The rights of communities to create and run local systems must be respected. Communities will have few incentives to come together without a basic expectation that their decisions and participation will have meaning and impact, and that their decisions will be respected by external parties. Diversity. Each community is different and will take different approaches. Context-driven, autonomous communities will experiment with different systems. Taking different approaches in different places means people have a range of opportunities to get involved, enriching civil society. This diversity should be promoted as it may reveal strong new approaches. Through a series of case studies, this report establishes how incentives are important for communities to continue collaborating before whatever situation or crisis first brought them together and that the relationship with local institutions can be a key determining factor in whether local, autonomous, and diverse self-governance can find space to function at all. Conclusions The most important Ostromian conditions for community power in the UK are locality, autonomy, and diversity. Without these, institutions will be too distant from the real needs and preferences of communities, and local-scale action will tend to be ignored, removing the incentives for self-governance. The best way to realize the goals of locality and autonomy is through reform to the way the state, at both national and local levels, functions in a rebooted relationship between people and institutions. This means institutions taking steps to become neither indifferent nor controlling but facilitative. The only way to realize a more facilitative state is through an Ostrom-inspired approach to devolution, one that places communities' rights at its center and works to a principle of subsidiarity. Every system should operate at the most local level consistent with its success. This means that nothing should be done nationally that would best be handled locally, and nothing should be done locally without real engagement and participation from communities. Recommendations Number 1. Reimagine devolution in the UK The UK government should move away from deal-making and consolidation 
recognizing meaningful community rights and actively looking for opportunities to disperse power away from the center. There should be an Ostrom-informed audit of the UK's balance of power designed to identify the reasons for the UK's over-centralization and make proposals for a new model of devolution built around the principle of subsidiarity. A community right to organize should be enshrined in central legislation, incorporating explicit rights to local autonomy, self-determination, and deviation from the norms and systems used elsewhere when localities deem this to be necessary. A community wealth fund should be established to ensure financial viability of much-needed civil society and community groups. Number two, escape the duopoly of markets and states. Central government should properly empower local authorities, who should in turn lead a culture shift towards less centralized ways of working within services, with more openness and horizontal relationships between institutions, the social sector, and communities themselves. Specific policy areas would benefit from pilots of Ostromian decentralist reforms to grow a stronger evidence base of the value of reforms that do not revolve around finding efficiencies and economies of scale. Local government finance should be revolutionized, allowing more local control of revenue raising and ensuring councils are resourced to be more autonomous and facilitative, convening and supporting communities in their objectives. Galvanize the change within localities. Positive change can start to emerge even without the above recommendations being taken on. If localities work to facilitate and create stability for nascent community groups and take a whole place approach when making plans and taking decisions. Communities themselves should reach beyond their localities to build a new collaborative network for shared learning between community-led groups, businesses, and projects in the form of an open access digital commons. Local councils, the social sector, and informal community groups can create a stable environment for neighborhood-level projects by reviving the idea of local charters. And this entire piece, the entire report, is linked here as well. And once again, it is called Think Big, Act Small, Eleanor Ostrom's Radical Vision for Community Power, put together by Dr. Simon K. K A Y E. That's at newlocal.org.uk. And imagining and studying those who have imagined uh, better ways, better ways of working, better ways of organizing our social structures is the way we move forward, the way we get beyond looking to the federal government, which does not act in our interest in order for us to, uh, to thrive. And that'll wrap up this episode of You Can't Be Neutral. Remember, you can follow You Can't Be Neutral on Twitter at YCB Neutral. You can find out more at youcan'tbeneutral.com. You can check out all of my podcasts at movingtrainmedia.com. There you find the link to 
send me a message. You'll also find some links there to make a donation. You can make a one-time or recurring donation to keep this and all my podcasts free and independent. Here is Howard with your moment of Zen. Thanks for listening. You can't be neutral. <laughs> yeah, you can't be uh, neutral on a moving train uh, because, and this is what I meant to say, I always have to explain what I mean to say because obviously the first time I say it, it's not clear. Sometimes even my explanations are not clear for what I meant to say. But what I meant to say was that um, the world is already going in certain directions. The world is already moving. Uh, the things are happening, wars are taking place, kids are going hungry. And in a world like this, already moving in certain directions to be, quote, neutral, that is not to take a stand, you know, is to collaborate with whatever is happening. <laughs>